What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. How do we go from here to here? Well, first of all, I left something out. I left out uh, C to the fourth, that's the fourth power of the speed of light in m squared, m squared, c squared here. As soon as I finish this one little demonstration, I'm going to set c equal to one. Maybe four and two are switched. Four and two are switched? Uh, do I have it wrong? You're right, sorry. m c squared, yeah, c to the fourth, very good. c squared, p squared, c squared, m squared, c to the fourth, good. Well, I would have been in trouble. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Public Access Access America. America. Okay. The non-relativistic limit is appropriate for problems where a particle is moving very slowly, which means its momentum is very small, and in particular, in which p squared c squared is much smaller than m squared c to the fourth. Under those circumstances, you can take the square root of p squared plus m squared and write it first in the form uh, m squared c to the fourth times 1 plus p squared c squared over m squared c to the fourth. You can factor out of the square root the m squared c to the fourth, and that gives you mc squared on the outside. That's a good sign. 
but with a correction. And the correction is just over here. What do you do with it? You expand out the square root. You use the formula that the square root of 1 plus a small quantity is 1 plus the small quantity divided by 2. Square root of 1 plus a small quantity is equal to the 1 plus the small quantity over 2. That's an approximation, of course. It's not exact. But as the small quantity gets smaller and smaller, it becomes better and better. So what do you get? You get mc squared plus p squared c squared over mc squared mc to the fourth divided by 2, all times mc, MC squared here. Okay, so let's see what cancel. mc squared, that's familiar. That's the relativistic rest energy. But this here has four powers of c in the numerator, four powers of c in the denominator. c goes away. It has one power of m in the numerator, two powers of m in the denominator. Cancel them. And you get the good old non-relativistic formula. But it's an approximation. It's an approximation, and when is it good? It's good when all particles are moving slowly. Uh, it's not just the whole system which has to be moving slowly to use non-relativistic physics. You might, for example, have a box of particles, and the box may be moving slowly, but inside the box, the particles may be moving with close to the speed of light. You cannot use pure non-relativistic physics for all of these particles uh, because they have relative motions which are up near the speed of light. So strictly speaking, the non-relativistic limit is a good thing to do when all of the particles are moving slowly, and it is an approximation. Now, there's another sense in which non-relativistic physics is an exact description of relativistic physics. So I'm going to show you this. This is something that goes back a long ways in particle physics. Uh, when I worked on it in 1968 or 67 or sometime, it was called the infinite momentum frame. Now it's called the light cone frame. So if you look up a light cone frame, you will see these things uh, described. Okay, but the, the, it's, it's easy. It's easy. If I don't want to do it in great and enormous generality, it's easy. And here's what the trick is. Instead of thinking of a system in its rest frame, when we said, or near the rest frame, in other words, a frame in which every momentum is slow, we're going to do a different trick. We're going to look at it from the point of view of a frame where everything, the entire system, has been boosted up to have huge momentum along one axis. In other words, boost it up so that it's moving down the z-axis. Let's take that to be the z-axis, so that it has humongously large momentum along the z-axis. There's no loss in generality there. We can take any system and just boost it so that it's along the z-axis, and then rewrite what this formula looks like. Okay, so I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set c equal to 1 now. I'm not going to bother keeping c. The energy is the sum of all the particles of, again, square root of p squared plus m squared. 
which is equal to square root of pz squared plus px squared plus py squared plus m squared. Miss an episode of Public Access America? Download the SoundCloud app now on your iPhone or Android device to catch up. Stanford University. But now we're boosting the hell out of the system along the z-axis until every single particle has a huge momentum along the z-axis. Every single one of them. If there's any particle which is going backward on the z-axis, you just haven't boosted it enough. Just boost it more until it's going forward with a large momentum. Uh, in that case, all of the pz's are very large. What happens to px, py, and m when you boost something? Nothing. Nothing. That's the rest mass. We don't even speak about moving mass anymore, the rest mass. And the components of momentum perpendicular to the boost don't change when you boost something. Okay, so now the big quantity is pz. And px, py, and m are kept fixed and are much smaller than pz. So the appropriate thing to do here in taking the limit is expand it for large pz. Expand it for this being small. The way to do that is to write this in the form square root of 1 plus, let's just call it p square, uh, px, well, let's write it out, px squared plus py squared plus m squared divided by pz squared all times pz on the outside, right? pz on the outside. If I brought the pz inside the square root, it would have to be squared. It would be pz squared, and then it would cancel this pz squared here. Okay, what's the next step? Expand. Use the binomial expansion, the binomial approximation, to do exactly the same thing we did over here. This is now the small quantity, and so this becomes pz times 1 plus px squared plus py squared plus m squared over twice pz. Twice pz squared, excuse me, pz squared. Or to summarize it all, the energy is the sum over all the particles of pz of the ith particle plus the sum of, let's call it p, uh, p will now stand for px and py. Let's use little p. Little p stands for px and py. Little p squared over twice big pz plus m squared over twice big pz. No. No. It was a pz up here and a pz squared down here. Okay? Good. I don't need to put brackets in. Okay, first observation. 
If we believe in momentum conservation, which we do in this class, if we believe in momentum conservation, then first of all, this is just the total momentum of the system. The first term here is the total z component of momentum going down the z-axis. It's huge, very large, but it's a constant. It's a constant, and as various things go on in this system, the total momentum never changes. If you have a constant term in the energy, which doesn't change in any way during the course of a, uh, you know, a constant additive thing, adding it to the energy or subtracting it from the energy doesn't do anything. For example, if you added the electric charge to the energy, since electric charge is conserved and the only thing that's ever important in physics is differences of energy, you could just drop it or keep it, it doesn't matter. The same is true here. You have a, a conserved quantity which is conserved for other reasons than energy conservation. Energy, of course, is also conserved, but PZ is conserved for other reasons. Here's something which never changes. You can just drop it. If you were to think of the energy as being the Hamiltonian of a system, it would make no difference whether you, whether you drop it or don't drop it because it's a conserved quantity which never changes. So you can drop this. It will make no difference. The rest of the energy here is this thing here. Now, first of all, notice that PZ is in the denominator. What does that mean? Why is, there, why is the energy so small? In particular, energy differences. For example, differences depending on the state of motion in the xy plane, they will be tiny. Why are they tiny? Anybody know? Why are the energy different? Okay, I'll, I will tell you. For this, it's useful to remember a bit of quantum mechanics, even though we don't need to be doing quantum mechanics. What is the meaning of the energy? The energy, of course, in quantum mechanics is the same as the Hamiltonian. It is also in classical mechanics. But what's the meaning of the Hamiltonian in quantum mechanics? Do you remember your quantum mechanics? It is an operator. It's a Hermitian operator, but it's also the oper hmm? It's an eigenvalue of the energy, but it's also associated with something else. It's also associated with time evolution. Public Access America is on Instagram sharing our episode art, snippets of the stories, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and more. Search hashtag BigBrainPod for more. Stanford University. Right. Remember that this is the same as I d by dt, namely I h bar probably d by dt. This is its action as an operator on a state. That what it means to say energies are very small is that systems are changing very slowly. This is also true, incidentally, in classical mechanics. I just uh, point this out in quantum mechanics. If the energies of a system are very, very small, it means changes take place very, very slowly. The smaller the energy, if the energy scales uh, with some 1 over pz here, it means that the larger that pz is, the slower things take place in the system. What's going on here? 
Very simple. It's time dilation. The more you boost the system up, the higher and higher momentum in your reference frame, the slower things take place. Okay, that's interesting. But of course, we have all the time in the world. Uh, a system mo moving, we can wait as long as we like to see things take place. If we're trying to make a theory of radioactive decay, sure, boosting it up will make the radioactive decay go slower, but uh, we can rescale that out. We can say instead of working on a scale of uh, microseconds, we'll work on a scale of millions of years, and we'll also see the, uh, we'll also see the, um, uh, the nucleus decay. Everything just has to be rescaled. <laughs> So this 1 over pz there, the total, this is the 1 over pz, this is incidentally for the ith particle, and we add them all up. So the fact that all the pzs get large, incidentally, in fixed proportion, they all get large in fixed proportion, that said the energy got small, and that's a completely expected phenomenon. Apart from that, if we rescale all the pzs, Ignore the fact that they get big or just rescale the evolution of the system. This Hamiltonian or this expression for energy really does look like the non-relativistic non expression with respect to the motion in the xy plane. For the motion in the xy plane, the energy is proportional to the square of the xy momentum, just as it is for the non-relativistic particle. But notice that the role of the mass of the particle in this non-relativistic analogy is not the rest mass. It's the momentum along the z-axis. What this means, what is mass? Mass is inertia, right? It's got to do with the difficulty of deflecting something. Uh, what this is saying is that the momentum along the z-axis is functioning as a kind of inertia with respect to forces in the perpendicular direction. And the whole thing is looking very, very much like, uh, if we think of PZ as a constant, then all this is is the non-relativistic formula for the energy of a two-dimensional particle now. Notice we now have only two dimensions of motion. And what, is, what about this term over here? How should we interpret that? Again, remember that uh, we think of PZ as being independent of the state of motion, at least the two-dimensional motion. So with respect to this two-dimensional analogy, analogy between relativistic and non-relativistic physics, it's an analogy between relativistic physics and two-dimensional motion in which PZ plays the role of the mass. And how about this object over here? It plays the role of the binding energy. Does it have the right properties to be a binding energy? The only thing about a binding energy is that it should be independent of the state of motion. It should not depend on, this does not depend on the two-dimensional motion. So this is kind of interesting. And it's not only interesting, it's incredibly useful in studying particle dynamics and absolutely central to, uh, to studying strings is that in a very precise and exact way, the motion of a relativistic system, when it's boosted up to enormously large momentum,
behaves completely non-relativistically with respect to the motion in the plane perpendicular to the, uh, to the boost. Okay. It's for this reason that string theory is also often de uh, described in terms of mathematics, which is the mathematics of a non-relativistic string. A non-relativistic string, a non-relativistic string is a collection of point particles uh, in some limit in which you let the point particles get more and more continuous, or moving non-relativistically. By what the chutzpah do we, uh, do we use non-relativistic uh, physics to describe anything as complicated as a relativistic uh, string? Well, the answer is that in the infinite momentum frame, which these days is called the light cone frame, mostly because it has nothing to do with cones, nothing whatever to do with cones. Uh, I'll tell you another time where it's called the light cone frame. Not important, but in the infinite momentum frame, motion is non-relativistic, and you have a chance that perhaps the motion of a string, when it's boosted up, may be described by, by a kind of non-relativistic quantum mechanics. And this seems to be borne out, not seems to be, this has been uh, the techniques that have been used for, since the very beginning of string theory to analyze relativistic strings. Um, let me show you the simplest fact. Yeah, uh, no, okay. Let me show you one of the very simple connections uh, that, um, that follow from thinking this way. Let's now hypothesize or postulate that we can think of particles as strings using the two-dimensional two analogy with non-relativistic physics to explore those strings as if they were conventional non-relativistic, not shoelaces, but something closer to rubber bands. Stretchable, uh, they can move, they can flap, they can do all the things that a rubber band, an ideal rubber band can do. Uh, what, uh, what's the mathematical description of a two-dimensional rubber band which is moving around in two dimensions? Okay. Let's take our rubber band to be an open rubber band. That means somebody took a scissor, cut it, and uh, opened it up. Let's begin with open strings. Open strings mean strings with two ends. There may or may not be something interesting attached to the ends, but we're interested more in the strings. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can.
Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download the app for free on your Android device or iPhone and subscribe to Public Access America. Stanford University.